We continue in our regular instruction of Christian reform doctrine in the light of the Word of God with the help of the Heidelberg Catechism. We're up to Lord's Day 2, having been introduced to the theme of the Catechism, which is our only comfort in life and in death. We are led here to what we need to know to know this comfort and to live and die happily in Christ and holily, so our happiness is a holy happiness. And Lord's Day, too, is that which would instruct us in the biblical truth. How do you come to know your misery? And the answer it gives is, clearly, the law of God tells me. And what does the law of God require of us? The Catechism reminds us of Jesus' summary in the law in Matthew 22, you shall love the Lord your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And then the answer is given right away, can you, or the question, can you live up to all this perfectly? And the answer is no, I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. In order to ground us in this wonderful truth of the first thing we need to know, to know Christ and the comfort of the gospel, we turn to the Word of God at this time and we'll expound this truth of the wonderful knowledge of our sins in the light of it, Romans chapter 7. Let's turn to Romans chapter 7 and hear the Word of God. The Apostle speaks of his experience his wretched experience in light of the law, but then in which the inspired apostle confesses his only comfort in life and in death. Listen for that, children. Let's all listen for this. Romans chapter 7, hear the word of the Lord. Do you not know, or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law is dominion over a man as long as he lives? For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she's released from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law so that she's no adulteress, though she's married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ that you may be married to another to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law would work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we've been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I bound to bring death. 
For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. As then what is good become death to me? Certainly not, but sin that it might appear sin was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. But we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. What I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do, not do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to, to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good, for I delight in the law of God, according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched, miserable man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God but with the flesh, the law of sin. We read this powerful word of God, and may God work in our hearts that it might be almighty powerful to convert us, to enlighten us, and to live the godly Christian life. This just in, yesterday just in, old news now, Israel is at war with Hamas, adding to the other significant war in Ukraine with the Russians. This war now, Israel and the Palestinians. And other wars are going on of which we hardly know. There's all these things that can take us into the, the furnace and the, the terrible strife of war at the drop of a bomb. We also can be led into war and the whole world into a third world war. That's just the tip of the iceberg, of course, of all of the miseries that are in this world, aren't there? And how many are the miseries? We can only begin to count miseries of Societal upheaval, shootings and murders at weddings when they're supposed to be celebrating this marriage. Evils in society not only, but evils and miseries in the church. Evils and miseries in our own life. We are born unto trouble and evil, the wise man says, as sparks fly upward. Meaning that as soon as we born... Hold on to your hats, ask for an armored helmet, 
the trouble's just begun. And so this is the problem of humanity, this, this misery, and the problems are often accentuated by how man reacts to misery, adding to the trouble sometimes by which he thinks is a solution. So there's COVID and there's a vaccine. Well, we have these troubles and these problems, and great are they. But the Catechism wants us, as it teaches us, and I say that, God's teaching us, and the pastor would teach us, and we would be taught of the Holy Spirit. This isn't a human thing, but we would be instructed in a divine thing, the truth of the Bible of misery. But the insight of the catechism, the insight of all those who would be teachers, is that we need to know, beloved, you need to know, and I do, your misery. And you need to know how great your misery is, and you need to know how great your sins and miseries are. That's the question of the day. It's not just about earthly miseries and platitudes and theological truths that we could say from this pulpit or catechisms could teach in their books. It's about a personal knowledge of our miseries in order to understand the personal salvation that is given to us in Jesus. Nothing less or different. You ready to hear of your sins and miseries and how great they are, then you're with me and I'm with you and you're with all God's people hearing now, hearing nothing else but what God would say about our sins and miseries. We want to use Romans 7 as a wonderful, wonderful word of God here about a man the Apostle Paul, who was so effective in his ministry because grace turned him into what he was. By the grace of God, I am what I am, he said. In Romans 7, we have this picture which reads like a psalmist of the New Testament in his struggle with sin and enemies. Paul, wrestling with his own sin in the flesh, he had seen the enemy and he pointed it out in many of the Greeks and the Jews. But he found out that especially the enemy was himself. And so he had this desire to do evil, you know that, or to do, to do good, and, and yet he found himself wanting to do the evil. And he had this resistance to evil by the grace of God, and yet he found himself doing and desiring the evil. It was a wretchedness, a wretched existence of a converted apostle of all things. But it's brought to his mind, and we're reminded of that by the word of God itself that worked in him this wretchedness so he could fly to Jesus. So this law, and that's what the knowledge of sin is, the catechism reminds us, is by the law of God. And so we want to consider what I would consider the necessity of a first revival, a revival that is of sin even, the knowledge of sin by the law of God. 
for there to be any kind of positive revival in our own lives. So we want to consider the sins and miseries of ourselves, then the knowledge of them, and then the benefit, the blessing of this, to be sure. So miseries, they're all over the place, aren't they? You know why, beloved? Because God is all over the place. I speak reverently. He's omnipresent, visiting his wrath upon sin. Miseries are connected with sin in this world. God made the world good. He made it perfect, and yet he made it so it, Adam could fall. And indeed he fell by his own free will at that time, his own humanness in which he and Eve chose for evil. The result was God's wrath and curse upon the creation. You see, this is the first thing we need to know. There's miseries, to be sure. There is the misery of plagues and all kinds of stuff. There is the misery of wars, the rumors that inspire in us fear, instill in us fear. There is diseases. There is the grief of seeing other people that we love, a daughter, a son, a spouse, we're going through grief and trial. There's the miseries of the mind that result from the confusion to which we're so prone, emotional disturbance into which many people are born and largely because of broken homes. Dad's not home, mom's not home, or they have two dads and two women. You know the confusion. It's a very, very miserable place to live in. And it's all because man by his sin has said, I don't want God. I don't want him. That's the nature of sin. That's what it is. Think of Adam and Eve in the garden. They had God. They had everything they needed because they had every one they needed, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. The triune God who said, let us make the earth and let us make man in our image. And Adam and Eve in perfection, they chose imperfection and independence and self-reliance and their own way. And so, this is human beings. They're out, they try to be out from under God, though they're under his rule, and they shake the fist at God because it's, it's all, isn't it? I don't want anyone telling me what to do. I don't want that. I'm the one in charge. That's what sin says. I'm my own man. I'm my own woman. Comes out in thousands of ways, these, this rebelliousness and this defiance. When children rebel against their parents. When people in the church rebel against the authorities of the church and we break the laws of the land and we think that we have, we have the right to do this. We shake the fist at God and his authority and the authorities that be that he has brought into this world to remind us of his own authority. The result is the God is holy who cannot behold iniquity except to punish it. He has cursed the world. 
You know that? This whole world is under the curse. And as one said in the 1600s at the time of the plague, the bubonic plague, sin is still the plague of plagues because God himself will plague us with the plagues of all of these earthly things and the plague of a bad conscience. He will give us no life and existence and consciousness except that he is angry with us. His wrath is revealed from heaven. He will also give us no sleep so that we are mindful that even sleep comes from God. He's angry with the wicked. Deuteronomy 28 reminds the people of God that even they, the people of God, would be under the curse of God if they would disobey him and serve other gods and spurn their privilege as the people of God. They'll be cursed in the house. They'll be cursed in the field. They'll be cursed taking care of the animals. They'll be cursed at the computer. This is how it is. Even the successes of human beings do not indicate the favor of God if they are outside of the favor of God to begin with, if they are under sin. It only is something that God is using further to plague them, to remind them that their wrath is all the greater because they spurn what God has given and the talents and the time and the money and they use it instead for themselves. So you have the curse of the Lord is in the house of the wicked, but God blesses the habitation of the just. Proverbs 3. There's this sin problem. Well, beloved, this is what, of course, the world needs to know, that miseries are always connected with sin. Always. This is the reason. And I know God uses agents, and the devil could be said to be the agent of misery, to be sure. He is. And we ourselves, we make our, our lives miserable for one another, but at the top is God. After all, we spoke of this in our Bible study at Calvin this past week. An amazing discussion of the truth of the sovereignty of God. And this is what they need to know and we need to know from the book of Romans, not only but from the whole of the Bible. God is God and there is none other. And even over the misery is God as someone who's commandeering all of this fallenness somehow to promote his glory and the justification of his own judgments upon the evil and upon those who dare to shake the fist and upon the devil and upon societies that build their babels and say, we will make a name for ourselves. God shouts from heaven, but I am God and you are not. So that has to be understood. All these miseries are somehow something to be understood as connected with sin and the wrath of God upon it. And of course, we don't say God's the author of the sin, but he is the judge of all the universe. But now, okay, say we get that right. Miseries, And sin, they go together. And we even figure out 
that there's God in the mix. No, above the mix, above the fray. But ruling this all, this miserable place now in his wisdom and for his ultimate glory. So we got that right. Sins go with misery, misery goes with sin. And there's God. Now, we're led by instructors faithful. There's truly catechisms, fathers and mothers. Should be. Elders. To ask the question, what is our misery? Our misery. And that, that's a needed question because it, it seems to be counterintuitive because we're saved from wrath, aren't we? We're God's people. And we don't go around suspecting that if we have a disease or we need surgery or this or that, that, well, this person sinned and sinned greatly even because they need all of these surgeries that they need. They have, they're always sick. No. Somehow in his inscrutable wisdom, God even afflicts us as the children of men. There's one lot to them all, the righteous and the unrighteous, the wise men says and the wise men know. God is our God, even in and through all the stuff, all the nasty now and now and all the future that's not going to be so great, is it? We think. We pessimists think. He's with us because he sent his son for us. And the instructors started off with that. Our only comfort in life and death, believers and their children. Our children can say this too. And now when we come to the knowledge of our misery, it's not to forget the first question and answer and the perspective we take and know of faith. We are God's. And so in this consideration of our misery, we need to know it's not because we're under the wrath of God as if we were reprobate and going to hell and all of these things that he's sending our way personally and whatever else means that he's angry with us. To be sure, when we sin against God, we do incur his wrath, but it's not like we are those who are not loved. We are loved. The wrath of God upon, upon the ungodly who are going to hell and who are who are building up capital for nothing is the exposure of these people to the wrath of God in a temporal sort of way at the end of time and they'll be sent to hell. But that's not what God's doing with us. But still we need to know our sins and miseries and the fact that in fact, beloved, we are of all men most miserable in a way because we sin against God who loves us and grace by which we're saved. That's the most miserable thing in the world. It is. It's the most ungrateful thing in the world and people who confess their faith 
And all of us who would stand up for Jesus, we know that, don't we? There's the Hottentot. They hardly know anything of God. There's the CEOs. They're just lost in their own riches and so on and in their own attempt to imitate love by loving man but not God. They, however, if they be not gods, are not saved, but we are. And we have the riches of any, everything in Jesus. God has not done anything but bankrupt heaven in sending his son. We're so blessed, exceedingly beyond what we could ask or think, and there's the heaven that's awaiting us, the prospect of eternity. So we're guided by his counsel to be received there, and we're chosen to be there. Amazing. And all is working for our good, for the good of those who love God and who are called according to the purpose. But our teacher and God the teacher would remind us this morning, you still have misery because you still have sin and you need to know it. You need to know it. I need to know it. My sin whereby I bring upon myself the misery of a thankless, godless life. That's my sin. Have you discovered that yet in your life? It's amazing how we learn from our teacher children, and they come to a certain age, and they start seeing things much more than black and white, but they see the problem within. You ever have sensitive souls as children? And they, they realize, you know, they say one thing, but they're doing another, or they're thinking another. And they have all these conflicted thoughts. Remember the first time you came to this consciousness that the problem is within? The catechism speaks of this, our nature being depraved, and we having original sin, and we need to, to deal with that in its time. But here, just that knowledge, that sensitivity. It's what the apostle says is what he had as an apostle. And there is someone, some people who imagine Romans 7 is all about a pre-converted apostle, but it, it's not the case. He was converted. He had the will to do the good. He was in the spirit, but he also had flesh, and that's what Romans 7 is all about. This is what he says in verse 14 and following Romans 7. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, or what I do, I do not understand. For what I will to do, what I want to do, according to his new man, that I do not practice. I don't do it. I want to do it, but I don't do it. And what I hate, that I do. So there's this conflict within, and this makes him wretched. And so he cries out at the end of this discussion with himself in this confession of sin, Pastor Paul confessing to the Romans this miserable wretchedness. Oh, wretched man, he says that I am. Most miserable man, apostle of light, apostle of Jesus Christ, bearer of the good tidings, that all our sins are forgiven. And here... I have this conflict within, this flesh that remains. How terrible it is. 
how inconsistent I am. How prayerless. How wanting to do the good, but and yet I find myself doing the evil. Or maybe I'm just a good Christian and I do good things when God is calling us to be an excellent child of God, doing excellent things. Or maybe I'm a Christian and I go all the way up to the mark and the mark is the cross and suffering for Christ's sake and I just go up there and I watch and I theologize about the suffering of Christ, but I'm not willing to suffer for his sake. His sake. So I go all the way up, but when it comes to giving up my pet thing, I don't want to do that because I need this security blanket or this kind of release from all the pains and miseries from life, and I don't trust that Jesus and his spirit and his grace are going to be enough. And hard times come, and I, I don't go, I don't want to go there. I just kind of run or back up. And I wonder if that's the problem of like all of us. We know the cross in theory, we know the resurrection as a as a great thing to, to have and to hope for, and yet we're just not there. Because there's this internal conflict which issues in compromised couch potato, easy sailing, comfortable, convenient Christianity. Remember, we spoke a few Lord's Suppers ago about floating by Hebrews 1, Hebrews 2, Hebrews 2. We just let ourselves float by the heart of Christianity, the meeting of God with man and that cross, which Paul would say in another place is the thing, the one thing he'd brag about. We find ourselves bragging about ourselves and believing the health and wealth and mega church gospel. You just do this. You just put these coins in the coffer and you just you have it all right and a smile on your face and You'll grow and you'll be successful. We forget the more Jesus aimed at the cross, the less people followed him. And the more the apostles suffered for Jesus' sake, people left him. So at one point he'd say is from the prison, all they in Asia have left me. Isn't that amazing? A whole continent left Paul because his gospel was too hard. And so there's a misery and there's a sorrow. There's this grief. The apostle, he, he's, he speaks of it. This sin that dwells in me. I know that in me, in my flesh, nothing good Dwells, for to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will I do not, I do not do, but the evil I will not do, that I practice sin dwelling in him. Sin from which he's been delivered, and, and this is our problem too. And the misery that accompanies this is, is just amazing. 
So really, it's a scary thing, beloved, when you ask. And when we ask together, and when we're asked in the catechism class, where all of us here are sitting, under the feet of Jesus, I trust. How do you know your sin and misery? Second point, how, how do we know this? How do we know it? How the apostle know it? Now here's what he says. The law of God. Romans 3, he's already said it. By the law of God, it's the knowledge of sin. But here he gets into detail about it. The reason is, he has just been saying and expounding the gospel that we're no longer under the law, but we're under grace. And so he's dealing with the question, well, what then is the law? Is it evil? Is it unnecessary? No, it, it has its place. And we're delivered from the dominion, the indictment of the law, and so on, unto God and unto grace in Jesus Christ. And yet there's this place of the law. It's holy and it's good, he says. It's not bad. You should know it. You should read it. You should take heed from it. Why? Because it teaches of sin. In fact, Paul says, I had not known sin except the Lord said, thou shalt not covet. Do you get that? In verse um, 7 and following. Law, Paul says, is that by which I learned sin. And that 10th commandment. Now, to be sure, he could have spoken of the first commandment. I had not known sin except the Lord said, you shall have no other gods. But to him... He was seeking or thinking that he was above the indictment of the law and the guilt of transgressing the law because he could outwardly keep the commandments and have no other gods by bowing down to them and never take the name of Jehovah on his lips and so on, so therefore never taking it in vain. And he could keep punctiliously the Sabbath with all the Sabbatarian rules they had, and they had lots of them at that time. Pharisee of the Pharisees, he... But that one you shall not covet. It got to him because it addresses the heart in a very special way. You shall not even think about a woman, says the commandment. You shall not even think about a man or boy or girl, man or woman, or three of them. Don't desire them. Don't have an inclination toward them. The law is spiritual, you see. It addresses the heart. It's not about just ten things on stone, but it's about ten things on stone that come thundering into your heart and blasting away at all the hypocrisy and all of the heartlessness of your life and my life. And especially the summary of Jesus who articulates the commandments as no one else could. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul, your neighbor as yourself. You've got to realize that is in the Old Testament, too. And the catechism here points that out. Deuteronomy 5, Leviticus 19. Still there. Jesus says this is what it's all about. Reminds us of just how holy God is, that he wants us holy entirely. Heart, mind, strength, and soul to be his And that is the knowledge of sin. That's how it comes. When God says, here's what's required, and we sinners find that we don't measure up. How different than the newspapers? 
The newspapers will give you knowledge of misery, even knowledge of sin. They won't call it that. But here they are, and newspapers. I guess most of us, you know, just on the Internet, whatever. Knowledge of miseries all over the place. Wars, rumors of wars, thieves, decapitations, and molestations, and plagues, and here and there, and the other thing. Greed, and, and all these things that lead to societal unrest, and more of the shaking of the fist and, uh, against God. And mark you, it's all leading as well to somebody at some time, very soon, rising up and saying, I have the solution to it all. And that's someone who rises up to say, here's the solution to all the misery of the world is called the Antichrist in the Bible. And he's going to have a religious aspect, a church, maybe Jewish aspect, and also a political aspect, so he will combine the kingdoms of church and state and whatever it is you want to call them into one mighty powerhouse and deceitful machine to convict us and convince us, if were possible, that his is the solution and that Jesus is not. I digress. By the law is the knowledge of sin. The law. That's how our bubbles are burst. That's why you need to hear, you shall have no other gods. Don't take the name of God in vain. Don't take your baptism in vain. You, you fretful women and men, rest in God. Don't kill. Don't backbite. All these things. The law says it just like it is. And all of it, love God, love the neighbor for God's sake. You see, this is the way of God. He doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't mince words. He teaches us what he requires. He's righteous. But now, beloved, we need something else, of course, and the catechism doesn't emphasize this. Preachers should. We need more than just the law of God. Lots of people have the law of God. Even pagans in pagan lands, they have the law of God. And that is the true knowledge of their sin and misery. However, it's not the knowledge that is going to be helpful. God gives the Holy Spirit for this knowledge to be helpful. He convicts the world of sin and unrighteousness, and he convicts us of the truth of the fact that we are the sinners. And he gives the Holy Spirit, and he gives the law of God, and he gives also the gospel of God to God's people so that we're reminded of the sinfulness of our sins and the plagues of our plagues. And the fact that we've added sin unto sin by reacting badly to some situation in our life and making the misery of a miserable thing even more miserable because we've added sin into the mix. And a reaction has been inappropriate, rebellious, and defiant. And we need, so we need the law of God, and we need the Holy Spirit, and we need what I would call lawyers, and the best lawyers there can be, and that is God's people themselves. Remember David hid his sin, 
and his bones waxed old for the roaring all the day long, hid a sin against Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite, sin of adultery, murder. Terrible was David at that time. Caught in sin. So caught in sin and as we are for periods of time and we backslide and we slide and back and back and everything seems fine. And, and interestingly, as that happens and everything seems fine with us, we start complaining about other people. Maybe to justify our own backsliding in all of this. Self-justification. That's just what we're into, aren't we? We believe in justification by faith alone, and we are those who are the miserable self-justifiers. How terrible of us. But to go to the lawyers. Remember Nathan the prophet came to David? God's one who brought the law of God to bear upon David. Remember that? He had this parable. He spoke to David. He's trying to win David to condemn himself. And he comes and he says, at the end, thou art the man. Thou art the man. And David collapsed in repentance. The law of God, by the Holy Spirit convicting him through a lawyer, through a gospel man who brought the knowledge of sin to him by bringing the word of God. Beloved, in all of my ministry, I have seen increasingly that that is exactly what the church needs. We need preaching by a preacher that brings the word of God to, the, to bear on our situation. You don't just want theories preached here. And you need elders and a pastor who can deal with us in our sin tenderly but also righteously and have so often seen that people are willing to hear the preaching until they fall into sin. And the elders are at the door pleading with them. It's too late. They fall into sin and they say, no, we don't want to hear it. And they may be saying all the time, well, God says this and we believe God's word. But when it comes to hearing God's word through people, through parents... Through people in your life, you say, I'm not going to believe that. I'm not going to take that word from you. I'm not going to submit to the authority of Christ in you. Can't do that. Because after all, men are imperfect. And yes, indeed, we all are imperfect. But beloved, let us hear God speak to us and convict us of sin through the law, the Holy Spirit, and through one another. That begins in the home. You have to speak to one another. The worst kind of wife is someone who agrees with a husband all the time. The worst kind of a husband agrees with a wife all the time. Beloved, don't you understand? Holy matrimony. It's yes, so that you can agree on the main things, but also so that you can be the best friend in iron, sharpening iron, and have your wounds sometimes, or wound your husband or your, or your wife, because faithful are the wounds of a friend. And you see, 
if that front line is infiltrated by the enemy and there's just this fear of disagreeing in a marriage and calling up short the husband or the wife, the church can't do a thing. Can't do a thing. Humanly speaking. Because we've let Satan into our hearts and into our homes. Yours? Thanks be to God, the great fruit of knowing sin is knowing Jesus. That's exactly what it's all about, beloved. Why do we want to know sin? To know more sin? To know sin better than other people? To say, ha, 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 I know my sin better than you. In fact, I know my sin so much, I even doubt my salvation. And I dwell on it so much, and I know all the texts. Jesus is going to come again, and he's going to say to those who confessed his name, I never knew you. I know that one. And here's the wretchedness of Paul, Romans 7. Don't you have that? I have that all the time. As if all they say all day long is, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of the death? And they can't answer the question that they asked, who will deliver me from the body of death and say the next thing, Jesus Christ. Had people come into my study, I would call them Romans 7 Christians. Beloved, if you're a Romans 7 Christian, and usually that's just the first part of Romans 7, you're not a Christian. If you're not a Romans 8 Christian, and a Romans 8 Christian says... There is no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. You see, that's where the true knowledge of sin and misery leads us to the Savior and to the fact that God forgives wretches like we are and miserable sinners we all are because he will glorify himself and keep you and keep me and lead us together to the cross and resurrection and to grow together in the fellowship of the miserable who are now the justified and go into heaven together. You see, misery is terrible. And if it's not dealt with properly, it divides. It divides. And everybody has the miseries. And you want people to empathize with them. And they have miseries over here. And if they, try to make, if they end up making their situation worse by acting miserably and sinfully, somebody comes to say to them, you know, what, you, know you don't know what it's like. Well, it's true. But if we all know the misery of misery, the plague of plagues, the COVID of COVIDs together, then we all know the Savior together. And we have the answer. And we have the communion of the Holy Ghost, who teaches us all in different ways, but in the same way, to rely upon Jesus forever. Do that, beloved. Do that. And go forward and say, Yes, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of death? But this too. I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We thank you, Father, for the word.
Oh, we pray. Work powerfully in us. Unite us in the truth, we pray, of, of Jesus Christ. Thanks for him who loved us and gave his life for us and has risen for our justification. Thanks, Lord, for this congregation that hears the word of God and that would seek to do it in all things. Thanks for the unity that you've given as the body of Christ. Thanks for the hope of the Holy Spirit and the gospel. Give us, Lord, to press on and to know that you are near. You are near indeed to the brokenhearted, near to all those who groan and sigh and who are burdened and heavy laden because they come to Jesus who's come to them and said to them, you come, I'm your Savior. Amen.